but I will pray for us. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your church. Thank you for giving us the call to gather together as a body of believers uh, and to continue to pursue you and our relationship with you um, alongside other people who can kind of support us and, and lead us and walk with us on that journey. So I just pray for tonight, God. I thank you for the folks that gathered and I just pray, God, that you will be present with us in this time, that um, your mystery, that your wonder will be, um, will be near to us that we will we'll have um, an encounter today where we're able to, to sense and seek you. Um, God, thank you. Thank you for being a God who loves us, and cares about us, and, and pursues us endlessly. We just pray that uh, we will honor that, that we will, we will see you here tonight. So ready us, ready our hearts, whatever it is we've carried into this worship service tonight, God. Let this be a time where we can put those things down and where we can listen and we can learn more about who you are and experience more of who you are. Thank you, God. We love you. In your son's name, amen. All right. So this is how tonight's message starts. It starts like all good stories start. It starts with once upon a time. So once upon a time, I was teaching a class of ninth graders about arguments. There are a couple of you actually here tonight who endured some of these lectures, which is to me. Nonetheless, we were working through these definitions of important terms, and we had spent this whole class period talking about the problems inherent in concepts of facts and opinions. Like if, if you were a bunch of former students, a loud groan would come out of the, the crowd right there. But nonetheless, we're talking about facts and opinions, and I've shared versions of that lecture here at the church many times, so I'm not going to retread that ground tonight. But the basic point was that the line between these two concepts, between facts and opinions, is much blurrier than we might think. And when we get right down to it, there are good reasons to be deeply skeptical of the things that we often feel very certain about in our lives. For the entire class period, I was also being observed on this particular occasion by the dean of curriculum at the school. And he and I had had a lot of ups and downs in our relationship over the years, and I was secretly pretty nervous about this observation, especially given the content of the class that day. In any case, after doing a lot of difficult work with the students for an hour or so, we reached the end of the lesson, and I closed by asking them to consider a question. The question is, is there any real way to know what is true? Is there any real way to know what is true? They didn't have to write an essay or anything like that. I just wanted to start our next class with that question. Is there any real way to know what is true? So I asked it, and the bell rang, and they all filed out. After the last ninth grader left the room, the dean came up to the front of the classroom where I was standing, and I will never forget what happened. He frowned a bit at me, and he looked me in the eye, and he said, a student should never leave your classroom confused. And then he just walked out. The evaluation did not go great. My fellow teachers in the room know that is not the opening to a good evaluation. And the reason I've never been able to let this particular story go is because even after thinking on it and thinking on it and thinking on it over the years, I have not changed my view on the matter. I'm still as convinced as ever that, in fact, confusion, when it's tied to a process of challenge and follow-through, is actually an incredibly important part of how we learn stuff. It can be hard, it can be even unsettling to face 
questions like the one that I asked those students on that day, but the consequence, I think, of not facing those questions, of living with shallow assumptions about what you know and what you think you know, the consequence of that is brittleness in the things that you believe. I bring this up because this week we're continuing in our series, Uncertainty, by moving from the personal grounds that we covered in the first two weeks of the series to the communal ground that we're going to think about before the series concludes. In week one, we talked about the danger of waiting on feelings of certainty in our lives, especially when it comes to taking a chance on something like our religious faith. And the point of that message two weeks ago was that seeking out and depending on absolute certainty before we take uncomfortable and difficult steps in our lives is really, is really, if you get down to it, just a way of stalling out our decision-making. And it leads to just simply continuing to place all of our trust, all of our confidence in ourselves. I talked about my decision to quit smoking at the end of last year and how I realized that all the time that I was spending hemming and hawing about whether quitting was really worth it, all that really just amounted to more time doing what I wanted. To actually see change, I had to decide at some point, is my confidence best placed in me or is my confidence best placed in someone or something else? And then last week, we talked about how we move forward from a decision to take our confidence out of ourselves and to put it elsewhere. And looking specifically at Christian faith, we asked, how does confidence in Jesus actually grow? And what we discovered was that it grows slowly and it grows steadily as we let go of the things that we depend on for a sense of control. And see how Jesus is faithful to us step by step when we do that. When I stop looking to money, for example, as a way of controlling my life, and I start to follow Jesus' example of living generously, I'm presented with all these little moments along the way to kind of pause and ask myself, is this thing that I'm doing working or not? Does my life feel more or less full as I take steps towards being more generous? Do I see any fruit from this, if we want to use kind of Christian expression? And if the answer to any of those questions is yes, then I can move forward another step on that path with this growing sense of confidence in where Jesus is leading me and in Jesus as a leader in the first place. And so tonight, after talking about those two things, tonight we're shifting our focus to what happens when an entire community of people begin taking those kinds of small, careful, and even experimental steps along the same path together? What does a church that's seeking to grow in its confidence, a church that's embracing uncertainty, what does a church like that look like? And what might the benefit be to a larger city or a larger community if it's home to something like that, to a group of people like that? In a nutshell, here's what I think we're going to find tonight. We're going to find that I think a church that is embracing uncertainty becomes an oasis of mystery and wonder in a desert of arrogance and pride. 
church community has both an opportunity and a responsibility to proclaim the existence of a God-sized God and to foster a different attitude about what it means to live well in the world. Churches can remind the world of the scale of eternity and the unfathomable gift of God's attention and his love. Churches can make a case for the necessity of justice in the world, and they can give permission for grief and lament when that justice is denied. The role of a church is important in the world, in our world. But in order to embrace that role in the ways that we're meant to, we have to stop pretending that we're okay, that we have all this stuff figured out. In the first century, as Christian communities spread outward from Jerusalem, where Jesus was killed and then rose from the dead, to areas even beyond the traditional borders of Jerusalem and Europe and Asia, they ran, too, into the temptation to offer easy answers, to offer certainty in place of the mysteries of God. And it fell upon the early leaders of the church such as the Apostle Paul, to try and steer them back to places of wonder and places of uncertainty. And there are a lot of places in Scripture we could go to talk about this, but I want to center on this one letter from Paul to a specific Christian outpost in Asia. The church is the church in Colossae, and like most predominantly non-Jewish early churches, faced this church faced significant pressure once upon a time to integrate their faith in Jesus as the Son of God with the conventional kind of polytheistic religions of the day and the community in which they existed. To try and sync these things up, the thing they believe with what everybody around them believes. And that would mean, in, in, this, in this kind of temptation, it would mean placing Jesus, like holding on to him as something important, but placing him within this pantheon of Roman gods. And he can be your favorite of those Roman gods, but he lives there among them in this, in this system. And I recognize that that might seem a little strange to us. We don't face exactly the same pressure in our day as Christians, but I think there is a bit of an overlap here if we look for it. It's the root of this temptation was less about believing polytheism, and it was more about categorizing and labeling and containing the strangeness of Jesus himself. If Jesus is just a God, then we can take all the things that we already believe about other gods and use them to make sense of him. But in his letter to the Colossians, Paul instructs the people not to do this. And he instead instructs them to embrace the mystery that Jesus represents. If God actually is God, Paul reasons, then we should know better than to try and simplify or summarize him down. And instead, we should wonder, we should wonder at how an infinite God could be fully present in Christ. And then wonder all the more at how Christ is present within us. Here's how Paul puts all of this. He writes, My goal is that all the regional churches may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. 
in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. I think there are three parts of this passage that I want us to kind of dig into here. And the first is in the first chunk there, in verses 2 and 3, which state that Paul's goal for the churches to have, I'm sorry, that Paul's goal is for the churches to have what he calls the full riches of complete understanding. I will admit that that seems very much like a message that is at odds with my point, right? If the goal is complete understanding, what's so wrong with trying to get to the bottom of who Jesus is? Or even of trying to kind of bullet point your faith. Shouldn't we all be able to do this? The goal is complete understanding. But Paul continues, right? And he says that the actual state of completion here, the actual goal, isn't quantitative. Meaning that you have all the data about Jesus. You can outline who he is in a nice bullet pointed list. But instead it's qualitative. Which means that what you are seeking, what you are achieving... Is the fullness of an experience. Paul says that the point of understanding is that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm not going to get bogged down in the Greek here to prove a point, but I would ask that you take my word for it that the present tense in this verse is no accident. The goal is to know. The present mystery of God, as it is still being revealed by a living Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That is to say, Jesus didn't appear once in the past in order to spill all the beans about God. Rather, Jesus is still living, still spilling, and through a relationship with him, We have direct access to these bottomless mysteries of who God is. Which is to say that the point of all this, the point of knowing Christ, isn't to complete the God encyclopedia. The point is being fully and intimately connected to an infinite God through his Son, who you can know. That's a bit abstract, so I'm going to summarize it. As our first point here, to summarize it, I would say this. The goal of the church is to help folks plug into God. I think that's our goal. The goal of the church is to help folks plug into God. And Jesus is the way that happens, we believe. 
And we, as a church, proclaim and demonstrate that Jesus is somebody with whom you can actually have a relationship. You can talk to him. He can talk to you. You can get to know his heart and his character. And your confidence in him as a result of all that can grow over time. So then what? Paul challenges the notion that being a Christian is is something that you simply sign up for, which I think how we often think of it. Can I convince you as you sit in the pew to sign up for this, to just agree to do it? This is, in my view, the most dangerous temptation that churches give in to. And I mean that. I think in a desire to make becoming a Christian as easy and appealing to people as we can possibly make it, we act as if like saying a particular prayer or getting dunked in a particular tub is just simply going to move a person from column A, which is for hell-bound demon lovers, into column B, which is for heaven-bound saints. So we present ourselves, we present the gospel in this way. It's just a, a question, right? Which of these columns do you want to be in? But when we do this, I think what we're doing is we're selling Jesus woefully, woefully short. Because his desire isn't just that we join his team. His desire, as he says over and over and over again, is that we know him and that we let him know us more deeply. Paul writes it like this. He writes, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. To receive Christ Jesus as Lord means exactly what it says here. The first step in building a church, especially in a non-Jewish city like Colossae, is to set yourself up somewhere. This is what people would do, right? You would go, you'd set yourself up somewhere in the town square, and you would proclaim to whoever's walking around that there's a new king in charge. That's how the gospel initially works. You're proclaiming there's a new king in charge, and you're telling people, hey, because there's this new king, Jesus, in charge of where you live, in charge of your city, you should hurry up and kind of get on board with him before he comes back to check in on things. This is the same thing that would happen if a new emperor became the emperor of Rome, right? Like somebody goes and tells everybody, hey, just so you know, there's a new guy, he's in charge, and like he's going to show up here eventually, and you need to make sure that you're like loyal to the right people in right places, that you're like in good shape before he gets here. And this is, this is how like a church is initially built once upon a time. When folks were stirred by the apostles' messages about what kind of king Jesus was, they said that he was not just an average emperor like we've seen, but he was a king of love and a king of mercy, a king with compassion for the poor, who actually elevated the poor and the suffering in his estimation into places of of, of blessing. That many people who heard about such a king were eager to pledge their allegiance to him. Why wouldn't you be? He sounds a lot better than what we had in the past. And I think this is what Paul means when he says that once upon a time you received Christ Jesus as Lord. Like you heard that there was a guy that would take care of you that was a better king than you'd had. And you said, fine, that's me. Like I'll, I'll be in his kingdom. That sounds great. But if a person's goal is just to get on Jesus's good side, Paul says then in his own letters that they're missing the point. 
Because part of the mystery of how Jesus works is that he's not just coming someday to check on you. He's already here. And you are invited to live in him, to be rooted and built up in him, to be strengthened in your faith and your connection to the kind of life that God intends for you through him. Which means that it's not just about allegiance. It's about learning to belong in God's kingdom. To summarize, I think, the second point here, I'd say that the work of the church, the work of the church, is to foster deeper relationships between people and their king. um, Anyways, we'll figure it all out when it's not the same thing. That's cool. We're going to get to that. That's good. Anyways, I would say this, the work of the church, repeat that, the work of the church is to foster deeper relationships between people and their king. And then finally, Paul instructs the church about the ways that this church he's talking about must differ from the religious institutions that surround it in your area. He says, see to it that nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And he's referring here to this cultural temptation we talked about to boil any religion down to its philosophical core, common and Hellenistic or or Greek-influenced cultures. He's saying, don't let other philosophers simplify Jesus for you. And don't try to simplify Jesus for them so that they can understand him. Because if you're doing that, what you're chasing is this human wisdom. His point is that if God is really God, let me say that again because it matters. If God is really God, shouldn't he eclipse what a philosopher can know? Surely you can learn about him. You can't hope to contain him. As a pastor, I feel this temptation on a weekly basis. When we get to these teaching times and our services each Saturday, there's nothing I want more than to, to finally summarize who Jesus is and what God is up to in the world and such a short, memorable phrase that everybody that shows up is just going to go, oh, I get it now. Like, that's Christianity. Like, I understand it. And each week, sounds stupid when I frame it this way, right? But it's what happens, right? Each week, I give myself seven days to, and then 30 minutes to do that, to summarize all of God. But this verse reminds me that this is precisely not what a church This is not what a church should be doing. My goal isn't to simplify or to strip the Bible down into something less than it is. My goal is supposed to be to see the Bible as this arrow that's pointing to something more. Paul says that the only person or thing, including the Bible, To ever summarize the fullness of God is Jesus himself. In Christ, he writes, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. 
It's really the point of this whole week tonight, this whole message tonight, is what if we paused on just that point? The infinite greatness of God was miraculously, mysteriously contained in the person of Jesus. A person who ate and drank and made friends and made enemies and performed miracles and then actually died by human hands on a cross. A person in whom the entirety of God dwells. The wholeness of God. And Paul says over and over in his letters that this is a mystery and he is right. But it's not a mystery in like the whodunit sense where the riddle gets solved at the end of the story. Rather, Jesus is a mystery in the most grand and cosmic sense. He is a being in whom there is fundamentally more at work than we have the ability to hold or to boil down. But we fundamentally and absolutely do not treat Jesus like this in in, in my experience, at least in the American church. And what I think is often a desire to make God seem relatable, which is what I think our hope is, what our, our goal is. We want to make God relatable to people. But when we do that, we end up treating Jesus like he is the most simple and the most obvious of things. He's God's loving arms wrapped around the world. He is the, the sacrificial lamb killed on behalf of all of us sinners. He is our Jiminy Cricket type spirit friend who's here to give us little blessings and to keep us company when we're lonely. I think we want so much to have the right metaphor for Jesus. And in search of that metaphor, we run away from any sense that there might be a part of Jesus that we're not capable of having. That he might actually be too much for us. We prefer Jesus who comes into our lives to help us out of trouble. We prefer stories where we get to remain the main character. We don't like it when we leave the classroom confused. But mystery is part of the point. The witness of the church, this is the third point. The witness of the church is the godness of God. That's the third thing that we see here, I think. Just as Jesus is somehow home to the fullness of something impossible, the church is meant to be a home to that fullness too. We're not able to fully understand how that could work. We're not meant to know how to boil it down for easy consumption. We're not supposed to be trying to make it singable in a worship song. We're supposed to be a testimony to the impossible, to the unimaginable. And we're called to this, we're called to that kind of crazy task because the world that we live in needs that. It needs to believe that. This whole time, this whole time, the world has preferred a vision or a version of God that helps to explain us. We want to know why we're here and who we are and what we're meant for. But the truth is that we exist in order to testify to the nature and to the mystery of him. We feel love in a way that overwhelms us. 
but is just a fraction of the love of God. We sense justice and the need for it, but in this way that barely imitates the righteous character of God. We get it all tangled up. We build communities, and we build cities, and we build nations, but in ways that are like sandcastles compared to the kingdom of God. The point isn't that we should should feel small, or that we should feel pitiful, or that we should feel insignificant. The point is that in us, in us, the mystery of God dwells. So as a church, our calling is to hold on to and embrace that mystery. It's to seek it out and to live in the midst of it. When we do that, we bring a bit of the light of this mystery into our world. And we have this chance as a church to say to the world around us, Hey, that sense that you have that there is more to all of this. That people and jobs and governments aren't enough. And that we, we are just this tiniest part of something bigger that we, than what we can see and what we can understand. We exist to tell people that sense that you have is right. You're right. There is more. Come join us as we commit ourselves to that mystery. Help us see how much more deeply we can know it if we seek it out together. Help us pour out the beauty and the love of it in the world, even though we don't fully understand it. Help us pour what we do understand of it out into the world as we experience it and discover it so that we're all richer for it. I knew getting into this week that it was going to be super abstract. But I don't know that this week is the week to apologize for that. I think this one week, I think it's best to walk away with a question instead of an answer. And the question is, if God is here, what on earth is going to happen? The goal is to figure out the right answer. In that sense, I don't mean this question is homework. Rather, I just want us to sit with it for a minute, sit with it for a week. And to see if we can't begin to see a bit more through it than we could see when we came in this evening. If God is here, what on earth is going to happen? I'm going to pray for us. God, we don't understand you. God, we can't hold all of who you are in our our minds, and yet the mystery of this thing we believe, the mystery of your Son, is that even though we can't hold all of who you are in our minds, that still somehow you inhabit us. That in your Son, your fullness dwells, and that in us, your Son dwells. God, help us individually help us collectively as a church resist the temptation to try and boil everything down into something we can know and something we can control and just this week god open us up to wonder into mystery 
Help us to see uncertainty as an opportunity to delight in who you are and in the ways that you're more than we can imagine. Nothing captures all of this craziness better than praying. I don't, I'm using words that are not enough to try and talk to you. And somehow that works. Somehow you understand my heart and you allow me to connect to you. And I pray that this week you will just push us to open ourselves up to wonder. We love you as best we're able. And you love us perfectly. Thank you, God, for the miracle of that. In your son's name, amen. At this point, we're going to have some quiet music and, and a little bit of, of silence here. Uh, and I invite you to receive communion when you're ready. Um, if you didn't get a chance when you came in to grab one of the little communion cups, just raise your hand. Meredith's walking around with a basket. She can give you one. And we receive communion every week here at Revolution because we want to, on a weekly basis, engage with this mystery. We receive communion. We're able to recognize in a symbolic way that that no matter how insufficient our understanding is, no matter how insufficient our practice of our faith is, that nonetheless, like always, Christ is available to us. He is pouring himself out to us always. And we have the opportunity to receive that and to renew our commitment to this mystery. And in fact, just those elements themselves are a mystery, subject of endless debate as to what even is happening. But... In just a moment, I'm going to shut up here in a second. But when you're ready, um, if you would like to receive communion, if you'd like to participate in that mystery this week, I encourage you to do that. And then after a few moments, um, we'll continue in worship, and I encourage you to participate in that too. The words, no offense to Garrett, who's behind me, but the words he's going to sing aren't enough, and the songs aren't enough. None of it's enough. None of it summarizes who our God is. And yet, we have a chance tonight to sing anyway and to participate in something bigger than us. Thanks for being here.